It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam A. Adams, and today I'm joined with Mr. Jeff Greenberg. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing fantastic, Adam. You had better be doing fantastic because (laughs) you've made millions of dollars in student housing investing. And today we're going to cover how you did that and what's a, what are the differences when we go multifamily and we go student housing. And there are a few differences. And if you don't catch them, you'll lose millions in student housing. So today, if you're even partially interested in student housing or if you think you might be able to be swayed to making millions in student housing, you're going to learn a lot today. So with that said, Jeff, how did you even get into student housing? If you could take me back into history a little bit. Well, that was kind of an accident. Uh, I actually had an intern that brought me a property that uh, happened to be a student housing property. So he brought it to me. Uh, the numbers look good. And uh, so we went after it. But that was our first venture into it. I didn't really go and look for it. It just, he bought the property, the numbers looked good, and so we made an offer and we're successful at it. I love that. Okay, so you made an offer and this guy just said, yeah, you can buy it. And tell me a little bit more about that property. Well, it so happens that uh, the two previous buyers had failed on this property. And so the seller was pretty well beaten up. And what does is, what is a buyer failing on a property mean to you, Jeff? Well, that they were able, unable to close. Okay, they were okay. unable to close for whatever their reasons were that I don't know. And so we made an offer that, was, that we found out later was much lower than the previous buyers. And we successfully uh, got, got the property. Um, I don't know why they, they failed on it. Maybe they couldn't get a lending on um, their price, uh, with their price. And that was, that was a challenge as well. That's a whole other story as far as the challenges we went to as far as getting the property closed and getting the lending on it. We had a lot of no's before we finally got the yes. Okay. Well, that's interesting, and I'd really like to dive a little bit deeper into that because this is the Creative Real Estate Podcast, and one of the things that I say about creative real estate is it doesn't just mean lease options. It doesn't just mean subject to. It doesn't just mean wraparound mortgage or seller finance. One thing that I've noticed with the, the people that are the most successful, the most creative, is that they learn how to ask the same question a bunch of times. People say, that's insanity. You've had four no's. Why would you ask again? The answer is going to be no. Well, it might. That's okay because I could go for 99 no's and all I need is just one out of 100 yeses. And, that, and then now I'm, I actually own that building. I actually got the loan. Uh, you know, jokes on you, 99 no's because now I'm doing it. And not only that, but you... You're, you've increased the value by over $3 million on one of these projects with the 144 bed. We'll talk more about that. That's $3 million of value. That's quadrupling the value. It's insane. So I just wanted to 
touch on that a little bit because a lot of people that just heard you kind of pass through that, they may not have noticed that you said, I got to know, I got to know, I got to know, I got to know, but you kept asking, you kept asking and you did end up getting a yes. Tell us about the loan that finally said yes to you. Well, let me, let me tell you about the ones that the main reason that there was an issue with the property. Um, the, the main thing is, first of all, this property is not a single apartment complex. This one is actually eight different properties. Seven of them are either next door to each other or across the street, and one's a half a mile down. Okay? These are a series of, I think, uh, let's see, we got two single families, uh, a duplex, uh, four triplexes, and a 12-unit property that were all bought together in a portfolio. So um, that first off threw out a couple lenders that said, oh, they weren't all contiguous. They weren't next to each other across the street, and therefore they wouldn't lend on it. We didn't live, we didn't have any of our team members that lived in Ohio that threw out some other lenders. Um, that the um, school population wasn't the number that they wanted, the amount of students that they wanted, the size of the, the school. Um, the other one was the 30% ownership was going to have a 100% control, which is, as you know, the typical syndication model. Where, And so they threw that one out. And so it was just we were around peg trying to get into a square hole, and everybody was saying, oh, yes, we can do it, we can do it. And then they would lead us down the road and then say, oh, sorry about that. You know, we, you can't do it. So our mortgage broker actually found a private bank. Um, it's a privately held bank that has 32 branches, which is pretty amazing to have a privately owned bank with that many branches um, that would do the loan for us. But prior to that, there was some decisions that were being made um, of a lot of money that had already gone hard or was about to go hard. And if I was going to continue down that road and I had to make the decision that, okay, that money's at risk. I'm going to risk that money. It's mine. It's not anybody else's money. I lose it if, if it doesn't go through. And I gambled that we would find that lender and we did find the lender, but it was getting, it was also, we had a great seller that was willing to give me the extensions that I needed. He wanted to sell after the other two failures. And so he was going to give us a time to get that loan. And with their help, as far as the extensions, we were able to do that. So that was the big thing on that, uh, that getting that loan. Wow, that's great. Let me ask you, well, you found this one property, 144 beds. It was, I think you said 30% occupied. You purchased it for one point. One million, and you later have now got it for a value, appraised value of like four point two million. And my question is, because you found that on a foreclosure, it feels like you might have had to be directly connected with the bank, friends with the bank, sending letters to someone. I'm not sure, but I really want to know how did you find that deal in the first place. Well, that, that deal was a marketed deal by a mm -hmm. national um, brokerage. 
uh, and that's how one of my team members did find that deal. But to answer your question about the lending is uh, at a 30%, um, actually it was a 30% economic occupancy, it was actually 48% uh, occupied, so only 30% were paying, the others were just living there for free and smoking dope. Um, so we, we didn't even go for a loan. We, we bought it all cash. So we bought it for 1.1 uh, cash with another 400,000 that we raised for the CapEx. So we had 1.5 in it. Um, and then now we're, we're selling it now for 4.2. Because okay. now, we're, now we're at 90, 98% occupied. Did you ever get a loan on it? No. And uh, let me challenge you on just one thing, just out of curiosity, because right now there's no loan. It's 98% occupied. You could probably get a loan for $3 million and pay off your investors, give them um, a little bit of money in the bank. You would have money in the bank, and then maybe it seems like you would just be getting paid um, infinite returns. You already know the market. You already know the property. Is there a reason why you're selling it for a profit rather than um, just refinancing it? Or financing it, not refinancing. Oh yeah, financing it. <laughs> Very good point. But, yeah, we've, we've given that some thought and we looked at the cash flow on it that we could get uh, a decent cash flow, but the, the amount of profit that we can get is just very uh, enticing. And after discussion with my investors, uh, they figured, okay, let's, you know, good idea. Let's just get out of it and get the money and let's look for something else uh, to do with the money. Um, but, you know, certainly that's, that is a way to go. Um, we just decided that this wasn't what we wanted to do on this property. This wasn't particularly a property we wanted to hold for long term. I mean, it's a 1999 property and currently we have some meat on the, on the bone for the next um, buyer. We're, if we hang on to it, uh, we're probably going to be chewing up that extra meat on the bone by raising rents. Um, I would like to sell it while there's a value add still in there. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So what I'd like to go into right now is I, I know you've done very well with student housing and you found this, you, you originally were a multifamily investor and then you somehow stumbled across the first one of these student housing and now it's like you just go after student housing. It's like, you know that they could be a problem to other people and that they are for a lot of your sellers and because they don't understand some of the tricks that we're going to get into today. And so you found a way to say, you know, when you have the knowledge, knowledge is power. And so you're able to kind of get in there and reposition these assets. But at the same time, if you don't know what you're doing, if somebody listening was like, oh, well, Jeff Greenberg's making millions doing this, so I, I guess I'd better, uh, I better quit my job and, and go straight to student housing. We need, we need them to be able to at least be mindful of, of some of the things that they're going to be running into. So I want to go through and talk about, first off, property management. How is that different between student housing and just any old multifamily? Yeah, the property management is absolutely key. I mean, it's, it is key on any uh, multifamily properties, and we all know that, and that's uh, certainly understated in, um, in a lot of trainings that we, we see. Um, but in, 
in student housing, it's even more so because there's a lot more uh, balls to keep in the air. The marketing aspects of it is so much more critical because you're using social media, you're using uh, on-campus uh, means to market. You may be going on the campus and having a booth uh, when they have open houses, when they have lease-up days. There's much more involvement with the school, much more time-consuming, and most of your property management companies, unless they specialize in student housing, aren't prepared for that. And if you expect them to do all those extra things, um, you know, they're going to be charging you more. They probably have no clue how to do it. Um, students like to see people face-to-face -face as well as um, social media. You have to be good at the social media end of it because that's where the young people are, are looking. So that's the key on the, the property management. Also, you know, being able to relate to uh, young adults and being able to, you know, um, to work with them. You know, people want to work with people they like. And so if you have the attitude of, you know, these are your clients, these are young people, you have to deal with them and um, have them enjoy working with you. Um, not that they're a burden. Um, sometimes they may be a pain, but we know that with any tenants. Um, but we're in a client business and we have to be able to relate to those students. So, and then, so I mentioned uh, the marketing part of it. The, the other part of it is timing. Um, you get yourself in real trouble if you don't get your lease up at the proper time. Uh, typically, uh, in multifamily, there's some months out of the year. Typically, we don't like to have vacancies December, January, and February on the multifamily side, uh, maybe November. But on student housing, if you don't get it uh, leased up during the lease-up window, you may have vacancies for the whole year. And that could be major problems. Um, so, so let's 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 dive into that a little. It is important when doing multifamily of any sort to time leasing appropriately. Um, there's things like, well, you can't. Not very many people move during December, or there's there's other things like most people move during these months and they don't move during the holidays and and so on and so forth. And there's other things about timing where uh, in the large multifamily assets that are not also student housing, where we're talking more about making sure that when we buy it, that the leases are kind of staggered. So there, there, it is important for us to time leases, but it sounds like it's catastrophically more important to time leases with a student housing, if you could go into more depth on that. Yeah, and, and it depends on the particular market itself. Um, in my uh, Ohio property, uh, typically we need to have everything leased up, um, except for my, my, uh, my studios. Uh, they have to be leased up by March uh, or April, uh, or we're probably not gonna get my, my four bedroom units leased up. The uh, studios, we could possibly lease up all the way through to the beginning of school, mainly because those are typically either grad students or young professors um, that want to, you know, just have the, the one bedroom. Those may go all the way to August. Um, but 
getting groups coming in with um, uh, four students in a four bedroom, uh, we've got to get them, you know, a lot earlier. Um, in my Georgia property, it's a totally different demographics. And we've seen that we could be leasing all the way up to August and all the way up to the end of um, the beginning of school because of that demographics. It's a much uh, poorer, uh, lower class uh, demographic. And, you know, they may not plan as well as the Ohio one, which is an upper middle class clientele. So each school is different, but you kind of have to know, you know, when that timing is. And you miss it, and you can definitely be, be hurting for a much longer time. In multifamily, you know, it may be a couple months that you may have some openings, um, but you're going to pick it up somewhere. You're not going to have to wait the full year to try to pick up those leases. Got it, got it. So we've talked about property management and the differences between regular old multifamily and student house. So we've talked about how to market to them. Uh, and the, it sounds like the marketing is different. We've talked about lease up timing and it sounds like you've got one window and if you, if you fail to get them in that one window, we lose them for the whole year and you're, you're sitting vacant for a long time. So you ha actually have to start marketing and prepping and getting ready for that. We also talked about, um, yeah, so lease up timing. Now we're, I would like to move into location, underwriting what school you're in, and knowing the demographics. So if we could really just dive into the location, what's different about the schools and what to look for, and then area demographics. As far as the, the physical location in relation to the school, it's important that you're close to the school. Um, my Ohio property is in what's called Mile Square. If you're in the Mile Square, you're usually gonna be 100% occupied. As you get outside of the Mile Square, uh, the occupancy goes goes down. Um, as far as what side of the school you're on is also important. You typically want to be on the side of the campus that has the, the classrooms uh, as opposed to the, um, the side with the uh, athletic fields because usually there's a long walk across the field. Now, the one redeeming factor may be if you're close to the, the party area, the uh, bar district, that might might help save you uh, as far as if you're not as close to the school. But typically, we want to be within two miles of the school. Uh, the closer, the better. And the closer to the classroom side, uh, the better you are as far as that location. Now, as far as demographics in multifamily, of course, we always are looking at job growth. We're looking at the age of, of the population. Um, the um, income of the population where in student housing we're looking at the health of the school how healthy is the school what kind of increases are they projecting what are they doing as far as capital improvements to their campus what percentage of the uh, students can actually live in the dorms a lot of schools require at least the first year sometimes second year living on the dorms and you don't really want more than 30% uh, capacity on campus. We're off campus housing and we want to have at least, uh, you know, three quarters of the students unable to live on campus if they wanted to. And typically they don't. Typically they want to get off campus as quickly as possible. 
And so we want to see what's going on with their, um, as far as the percentage of dorms that they do have. Um, and as I said, the health of the school, what's going on? Are they growing their population? Is it going, you know, up, down, whatever? But it's, it's more the school. The other thing we do look at is as far as online, we know that a lot of schools are doing online instruction. So we want to see, you know, what population um, is being doing online and, and doing that from home and don't have to live on campus. The, the other thing um, I like to find out is how many students are actually in the area as opposed to being able to commute from home. Uh, we have several schools out in California that, you know, there's, you could be living at home and drive, you know, drive to the campus uh, within 15 minutes. So why do you need to, you know, live uh, off campus or excuse me, away from home? The property we have in Ohio we're 45 minutes from Cincinnati and an hour from Dayton. You're in the middle of nowhere, which is one of the things I really like, is you're not driving the Ohio winters uh, to get to school, you know, um, to go to that campus. So if you want to be on that campus, you're going to be living there. You're not, you're not driving it. You don't want to, you don't really want commuter schools. Okay. Let me ask you, when looking at online classes and I know I'm just throwing this out but I'm very curious and I really like to understand it a little bit more so when we look at Amazon taking over some other jobs let's just say Toys R Us maybe Amazon might have put them out of business because now mom and dad can go and look at reviews and push I want that for Christmas and it comes and and they can wrap it for, you know, a kid. Now, um, now all of a sudden, Toys R Us is out of business. One other thing that I'm noticing is people are, not just people, but I mean, a lot of universities that I've been seeing, and even high schools, in fact, are starting to have and offer more online classes and some of some universities are starting to offer a ton of online classes across the nation as well. So I was wondering how that gets factored in when you're going to buy a property with student housing at a university. Is there a concern that maybe over the next two or three years, they will offer so many online classes that um, just so they can save labor on on teachers and save classrooms that it would work backwards for you or is that not a concern no, it's certainly a concern and it's certain that we want to something that we want to look at as far as what population they have and that they're projecting are going to be doing the online classes the the one thing with online classes is it takes a whole different discipline as far as on the students uh, and to be disciplined enough to show up to the class. If you've ever taken online classes, I know I have, um, sometimes it's way too easy to get distracted and to maybe not show up at the class or, um, I don't know, just not quite concentrate as, as much. So I don't know, but it, it definitely is something we look at to see what their projections are as far as the offerings and the number of students 
that are participating in it. I would suspect that you would see a lot of people that are maybe coming back to school that are doing more of the online and maybe they're busy, you know, they're working and they're also going to school and that would be the main benefit for them. But your younger people, um, I don't see it as a huge percentage, but certainly in the future, I would definitely look at that. And every time we're going to buy, we do look to see what that particular school is doing with the online classes to see how it will affect us. I mean, it, it could, but I don't see it, you know, uh, well, with the expense of, of uh, housing and everything, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Love it. All right. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the final five. This episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. And I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have uh, been listening to the show for a little while, you love the show, and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review, I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. And we're back with Mr. Jeff Greenberg with a final five. Jeff, I've got a question for you. What's the most creative deal you've ever done? The most creative deal was probably that foreclosure um, that we got that uh, the student housing that one, as I said, we've got it at 30% occupied. We bought it all cash uh, and um, got it quadrupled our, our value of the property in two years. Love it. And I forgot to mention earlier when I was bragging about you that this wasn't something you did in 10 years. This was something where you quadrupled the value of from purchase price in just two years. That's yeah, that is a remarkable thing. That's awesome. Love it. And great for your passive investors in that deal with you as well. I'm excited for you to sell it at 4.2. That's going to be amazing. The next question I want to know is what a book, what is a book that you recommend? Well, there's, there's lots of books. Um, as far as uh, real estate books, you know, I mean, I like uh, Rod, Rod Cleef's book. He's got a great book. Joe Fairless has uh, a great book. I can't remember. It's an apartment syndication, I believe. Yeah, best ev- best ever apartment syndication book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are those are the ones I'm I'm actually in the middle of reading Rods right now. So that's that's a great book. But there there's a lot of good ones out there. I mean, obviously the one I think the one that the the two books that started me out was of course Rich Dad Poor Dad and the Cash Flow Quadrant. But the other one was the E Myth. Um, I do like the e-myth as far as systematizing uh, your business. Perfect. I have a question that came in from one of the listeners. It is Mr. Paul Vincent, and he is live on Facebook with a question for you right now. And he's asking, Jeff, do you ever approach college teams with student athletes that you'd prefer to have as tenants? That's a great question because that's how we um, leased up our Georgia property that we actually went to the uh, athletic department, football coach, basketball coach, uh, track coach, volleyball coach, and we told them to send their students over to our property 
And the track coach actually uh, uh, came back and said, why would I send my students over there? Obviously, with the reputation that it had, uh, he wasn't going to send his students over to a place where they were just sitting around smoking dope. And uh, we invited him to come over to see the property, you know, once we had taken over and were cleaning everything up. And we do have athletes now. Um, I'll give a little, um, uh, a, a little idea on the marketing on that as well. For a $3,000 sponsorship of the athletic department, they are putting a two 60-second clips um, that we have that we produced about our property on their jumbotron at every home basketball and home football game. Okay, for three thousand dollars a year, and that's why we're uh, now will be pre-leased uh, in August um, for ninety-eight percent on the uh, on the property. But we've got uh, definitely got athletes. The other thing I like about athletes uh, in the property is. We also have another, uh, some more leverage on the student's behavior that we could kick them out of the property, but if they're causing problems, but we could also go to the coach and tell the coach, I say, you better, you know, work with this, with this student, this athlete, because not only are they going to, you know, lose their spot in the apartment complex, but, you know, they're risking their, their, their spot on the team and working together with the coaches uh, is a great way to go. So we both can put the pressure on the student to shape up. All right. The next question that I have for you is, how do you give back? How do I give back? Um, I spent a lot of time helping people out. I do uh, mentoring uh, with with others. Um, I run two different clubs. I go to a lot of different uh, meetups where I participate and help people out. Um, that's Probably the, the main way that I, that I do give back is back to our investor community. Awesome. That's my guess. All right. So um, last question for you, Jeff. Synergetic Investment Group is the name of your company. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So that was my penultimate question because I still have another one after that. Um, Synergetic Investment Group. How do people find your company? How do they find you? How do they get a hold of you? How do they... How do they reach out and ask you more questions on student housing if they have any? Okay, we do have a website, www.synergeticinvestmentgroup.com. Uh, they can reach out to me at jeff at Synergetic Investment Group or Synergetic IG, as we have a shortened uh, version of that. Um, those are probably the two easiest ways. I'm also active on Bigger Pockets, so you can contact me there as well. Got it. So synergeticinvestmentgroup.com and or Jeff at synergeticinvestmentgroup.com. And finally, you said they can go look for Jeff Greenberg right on Bigger Pockets. I love it. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate the time that you took to share all of your all of this knowledge with the listener and with me. And, you know, who knows, maybe I'm going to have to switch over to, to your, uh, your way of life and not just do the multifamily. Maybe I need to start quadrupling my money in two years um, instead of doubling it in five. Who knows? But I really, 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 really appreciate you hopping on the call, being here, sharing your knowledge, sharing your wisdom. 
I wish you the best. I will see you at the next Mastermind. And until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.